Tycoons of Small Biz, a podcast where small business owners are celebrated as the backbone of the American economy. Each week, we introduce you to tycoons who share their stories and advice so that small business owners may learn from their experiences. Tycoons is powered by Backbone Planning Partners. Join us now as our hosts connect you to today's tycoons. Good afternoon, tycoons, and welcome to today's episode of Tycoons of Small Biz. Today is our special quarterly episode where you get to hear from Landon and I and share some of the experiences that we've had over the last quarter or share different advice, et cetera. So Landon, welcome back to the show, buddy. Yeah, excited to uh, to be chatting with you, man. And so we're actually uh, just on the other side of the walls here. So Austin's uh, out here visiting kind of our, our uh, head HQ out in Vegas. So excited to have you here, brother. Yeah. Yeah. Always good to, to be here. So <clears throat> recently I've asked a few of our guests what the word tycoon means to them. And so I'm going to start by asking you what tycoon means to you. Hmm. All right. I like it. Catching me off guard from, uh, from, the, from the, from the onset. I like it. I like it a lot. <laughs> Um, the word tycoons, what does it mean to me? Um, you know, I, I guess when I, when I think about it, I think about it through the lens of small business, probably because that's who we are. That's who we serve. Um, you know, our entire practice is, is pretty much built around serving small business owners. And, and the fact that our type, that our, our podcast is named after it, it, it just kind of all comes together and, you know, just makes me think about really the people that have come onto the podcast, you know, and I, I guess that's also the clients that we have the privilege of serving, you know, which is really the the small kind of main street, you know, business owner. And um, it just makes me think about, you know, uh, creating something from nothing. And, uh, you know, that's, that's, the story for most of the people that come onto this show, which is, you know, uh, most of the people have literally created something from absolutely nothing. You know, there's, I'm sure there's some, some of our guests that have come on that, you know, have, you know, acquired, you know, an existing business, which is a great, a great thing to do. Um, but I don't think that's the case for most of the guests that have come on the show. I, I mean, I, I would venture to say probably 90 to 95% of the people that come on the show have, have literally started the business, you know, um, you know, on a shoestring, you know, from, from, from scratch. And so, you know, I, I guess that's kind of what, what it would mean to me is, is building something, creating something um, from, from essentially nothing to something that is uh, meaningful to something that is, you know, that, that, that allows a, a large group of people, maybe that's five people, maybe that's a hundred people, you know, to, to have, you know, a meaningful livelihood, you know, a good solid place, you know, to work being led by a, a person, you know, with, with high, you know, moral standards and high values and, um, so yeah, I think that's kind of encapsulates what what my definition of a tycoon would be. 
Yeah, no, I love it. I think, uh, you know, what's interesting is that everybody's take on the word tycoon is just a, a little bit different, right? I mean, the the initial usage of the word, you know, everybody would talk about like an oil tycoon or, you know, you think back in history to the Vanderbilts or the Henry Fords of the world. And, and more recently, you've got like the Bill Gates or the Mark Zuckerberg or the Steve Jobs or you know, those those people are definitely tycoons of industry, people who have built something significant, right? But in my mind, the reason we we went with the word tycoons when we put together this podcast is that there are a lot of really strong, really great businesses that are run by business owners throughout this country that are never going to become household names. But those business owners in my mind, are truly tycoons. I would put them up against any of the people that I that I mentioned previously in their ability to run and operate and build a business. Just because it wasn't something groundbreaking, right? Like Facebook with social media or Bill Gates with the operating system, something that really kind of just had this ability to have this huge trajectory and, and push them to that point, doesn't mean that you're not a tycoon in your own right because of the way that you run operate and build your business. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I love it. Yeah. So over 150 episodes in, we're excited about uh, where we've come from with the podcast and, uh, and where we're, where we're going to go from here. But as I mentioned at the beginning, we've decided that once a quarter, we would interview each other and just kind of talk about some different things that, that we're seeing in our day-to-day practice that can benefit business owners who are listening and and you and I decided that this episode, we would talk a little bit about growth through acquisition, right? And so, you know, obviously you can grow a business through organic growth, and that's by going out and finding new customers and, you know, doing everything that you can to continue to grow your revenue. But another way to do that is through, through acquisition. And so our listeners are probably not aware of this at this point. Maybe I've mentioned it in some other episodes, but um I've done acquisitions in the past. You're in the middle of an acquisition right now. And so let's just kind of start by having you lay the groundwork as to what type of acquisition you're doing, how it came about, what your process was like, and and just kind of, we'll start by unpacking it there. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. It's not, uh, it's not really uh, public knowledge, you know, that, that I am doing this, um, so this will be kind of the first <laughs> the first time that I'm kind of publicly, you know, talking about it. So that's cool. Um, you know, uh, I, I kind of was introduced to uh, there's a couple different terms for it. You know, the kind of the the buzzword right now is ETA, entrepreneurship. You know, through acquisition. And although you and I already own a business together, which I, I would classify as. Uh, you know, starting from scratch, you know, our, our story is pretty unique in the sense that I started my practice from scratch. You started your practice from scratch. And then we've, you know, been, uh, you know, uh, in the process of, and, and essentially have, you know, merged our, our practices together now so that, uh, you know, we, we operate, you know, much more like a, like a team. Um, so, uh, you know, that was kind of the, the starting point kind of for my entrepreneurial journey is when I started my practice that was back in, um, 2000 and, you know, 15. So here we are, you know, eight years later, 
And uh, the last couple of years, uh, I, I think it's it, it really started for me, uh, you know, with my background, obviously, as a, you know, financial advisor for the last, you know, 12 years, a lot of my discretionary monies have been invested into things that we all commonly invest in, you know, which is mostly, you know, marketable equities. And um, I got to a point a couple of years ago where um, I'd been pretty aggressively saving and investing and uh, was interested in, in, you know, pursuing some other avenues. And that led me to starting to look to buy a business as an investment. And so um, last couple of years, I've looked at, uh, I've looked seriously at, I don't know, maybe three or four businesses. I've looked at a lot more than that, but seriously probably looked at about three or four, uh, made a couple preliminary offers on some, but never, never really made any traction until I came across, you know, the business that I'm, I'm in the process of acquiring, you know, right now. And um, it's very different. You know, I can't really speak to any specific details around the business quite yet, but uh, very, very different than uh, what you and I do in our day jobs. You know, the business that I'm acquiring is a, it's in the tree care space. And um, this business was built by a, a really wonderful uh, couple that to own and operate the business and have done so for over two decades. And what, what led me to the business was uh, a number of different things. One, I had set a uh, kind of a minimum threshold, you know, for revenue and profitability. So it, it checked that box. Um, I wanted something that had been around for a minimum of five to 10 years check that box. Um, I wanted something that had built a strong foundation, but also had a lot of room for growth and improvement and certainly checked that box. So um, that's what initially attracted me, you know, to the business. And so here I am now about uh, probably eight to 10 weeks into the acquisition, you know, from submitting the offer and, and having that being accepted to going into due, dil into due diligence. And now, you know, we're just kind of waiting on financing, you know, to line up and we'll close on uh, actually a month from today is the expected close date. So May 25th is the expected close date. Um, so that's kind of the, that's kind of what is going on. So we can certainly dive into you know, any more of the details that we think would be relevant or valuable to share, but um, that's kind of the acquisition in its essence and where we're at um, at the moment. Yeah. So let's, let's actually back up a little bit and talk, uh, talk about how you got started in this process. You can, you can talk about why, right? Why you thought you, you wanted to do something like this, because You've done some other investing in the past, not just with marketable securities, but as an angel investor, for example, and, mm -hmm. and why you, you know, kind of chose to do that. But then for our listeners who are listening and thinking, well, gosh, yeah, I'd, I'd be interested in acquiring a business. Maybe they don't own a business at all right now. Maybe they want to 
grow their own business through acquisition, or maybe they want a completely separate business like what you've done from, from your day-to-day job and business. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, how do they get started, right? Like, how do you even know where to look for a business that's for sale and to start this process? Yeah. So I would say even before you start to look for a business that you you really need to put some, you know, kind of lay the groundwork for like, you know, why is it something that you want to do? Um, what is that going to, you know, what is that going to look like, you know, after you acquire the business? Are you looking to run the business yourself as the day-to-day operator? Um, you know, this term passive investor or absentee owner, you know, gets thrown around a lot. And uh, for somebody that's acquiring a small Main Street business, and I would really classify that as, you know, anything under $20 million of revenue. Um, the idea of buying a, a business, you know, and being totally passive or absentee, uh, I would say that that's, that's kind of a, you know, that's kind of like a myth, you know, it's kind of like a, uh, you know, it's, it's a, uh, it's a, it's a unicorn or, you know, it's a, it's a Bigfoot kind of type, you know, (laughs) scenario where, you know, uh, they may or may not exist out there, but uh, if they do, uh, you know, uh, they've only been seen by a very select few. And I, I think that's the case with, you know, buying a small business and thinking that you can buy something and be an absentee owner, or, you know, it's going to be totally passive. Now, that does, that does exist and and can come to fruition, I believe, over time. But initially, uh, I think um, that that, that's just a a bit of of a stretch to, you know, to, to realize something like that right off the bat. All right. So I I digress. Um, So you got to figure out why you're doing it, you know, what it's going to look like. You got to start thinking about, you know, geography. Are you going to, you know, are you willing to move out of the city, out of the state, you know, out of the country? Um, So you got to figure out what the geography looks like. And obviously that's going to be very specific to somebody in their unique, you know, situation. Um, You know, for me, that geography was, was, uh, you know, was a deal breaker, meaning that I was not going to acquire something outside of the city, you know, that, that I lived in. Uh, Maybe at some point in the future, as I look to acquire other businesses, that might be the case. But um, on this first one, uh, was going to be something that was going to be local to me. So local to essentially to Las Vegas. Um, and then, you know, uh, starting to kind of figure out what things are going to look and feel like from there, but you got to figure out, yeah, why you're doing it, you know, what kind of business, what size of business that you want to look for, you know, um, are you going to run it or are you going to attempt to hire an operator from day one? Um, and then geography, that's kind of a good starting point. And then you can start to back into, what kind of, you know, business that you want to start looking for and, you know, how do you actually start that process of looking for a business? You know, where do you, where do you go to find it? Yeah. 
So tell us where, where do, so once you've kind of put together your list, the things that are important to you and the way that you want to, to build this, which I agree with hundred percent, you shouldn't just go in and start looking at listings and go, Oh, that looks interesting. You you've got to know what it is that you're trying to accomplish here. The classics I've said it a hundred times on this, on this uh, podcast, the classic begin with the end in mind from Stephen Covey. Right. So ha- have an idea of what it is that you're, looking to acquire and ultimately where you think you can take it over time. Okay. You've, you've set all those parameters in place. Now it's time to actually find a business. Where do you look? Yeah. You know, as you and I were prepping for this call, we talked about, you know, just kind of bullet pointing, you know, our discussion today and and it started with acquisition and really there's, there's two ways to, to grow a business organically and through acquisition. And it's actually the same kind of, uh, it's the same kind of deal uh, when you're looking for a business. There's really two ways to go out and buy a business. You can do it, we'll call that the organic way. And the organic way would be you just, you start to figure out some businesses, you know, uh, again, let's just assume that you're going to stay local you go out and you start to make a list of maybe you know 50 100 500 businesses that would fit your criteria and you just start to do cold outreach to these business owners and and say something to the effect of hey you know uh, my name's Landon you know from from the outside it looks like you've built a really wonderful business um i am looking to acquire you know a business that is I, I believe to be similar to yours. Are you open to having a conversation, you know, around that? Um, and most of your outreach will go, um, will go unnoticed. Will go, you know, you'll, you'll get uh, very few responses. But the responses that you get could end up being, you know, quality and, and leading to some great opportunities. That route is extremely time intensive. Um, to really successfully find a business doing that, you know, most people will spend the equivalent of a full-time job, you know, doing that. And that's where you'll hear this term like searcher, you know, somebody that's out there searching for a business essentially full-time. And most people that do that, the typical time frame will be six to 24 months, you know, to, to find something. Uh, and the second route would be uh, through listed businesses. So business brokers that list businesses for sale, just like you would list a house for sale. Uh, brokers list businesses for sale. Um, and there are several different websites. Biz Buy Sell, I think, is the largest uh, marketplace you know, for listed businesses. And then there's, you know, there's several others that you can look at. Um, and that's how I found this business. So this particular business actually happened to be listed uh, by a, a friend of mine uh, who sells a lot of businesses. And uh, this business had come across my desk, you know, through email. I was interested in checking it out, inquired, uh, was, uh, uh, you know, was beat out by somebody, you know, that made an offer, you know, within... I don't even know. I think it was a week or maybe two weeks maximum. So they took the business off the market 
And then uh, that opportunity uh, was not able to be closed by the potential buyer. So it came back onto the market. And the same day that it came back onto the market, I inquired and um, ended up setting a meeting with the sellers and just had a lot of rapport with them, which is super, super important. Anybody that's acquired a business will tell you that, you know, being able to get into rapport quickly uh, with the sellers is, is imperative. So uh, I was able to do that. And then uh, after the first meeting, we had a second meeting within one to two weeks and made an offer and was accepted and then moved into our exclusivity period, which just means that typically when you make an offer on a small business and it's accepted, you're going to move into a period where the business is essentially taken off the market and they cannot, uh, they cannot uh, entertain or accept any other offers because you're essentially, you know, locked in with them. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit more about the the rapport that you mentioned and what, and why you feel that's important. I mean, first of all, anybody who knows Landon knows that Landon can build rapport quickly with pretty much anybody. Um, but talk to us a little bit about why you think building rapport is important and what common ground existed in this particular transaction and why you think that made it easier to get through the negotiations, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, my, my one word answer would be alignment. And um, to just elaborate on, on that a little bit, you know, when you, if you acquire, you know, a, a business for um, strategic reasons, which, you know, I think maybe we'll get into that a little bit. So, you know, you own ABC flooring and you go out and you acquire, you know, DEF flooring. Um, you know, that's kind of a strategic acquisition because uh, maybe you're, you know, you can, you know, uh, do a better job of marketing. You can create efficiency with the team. You can, uh, you can cross sell, you know, so that would be more of like a strategic um, acquisition, but regardless of your intent behind an acquisition, there just there there has to be a lot of alignment. You know, alignment in the uh, in the the values that the companies kind of operate. You know, under um, alignment in the uh, the the vision of you know where a company is and where it's going. Um, you know, alignment in the way that. Uh, the, the folks that work inside of the business, you know, tend to do things. Um, I, I could go on, but the point is when there's a, uh, when there's misalignment, you know, in a lot of those things, that's where you see acquisitions go, go haywire. Right. Um, and so when we, when, you know, when I met with these um, sellers, you know, there was just, there was a lot of alignment in all of those things that I just kind of listed. But I'd say, honestly, probably the most important thing, at least to me, in this particular acquisition was, um, you know, just a, a, a significant of alignment in personal values, in uh, the way that they treat people, 
um, in the way that they interact with people, um, you know, eye contact and in body language and, you know, uh, standing up out of the chair to shake, you know, to shake your hand. Um, so a lot of just little subtle things like that that are uh, really, really important to me uh, work for them because of, you know, just clearly based on their on their actions. Um, so there was just there was instant kind of rapport with uh, these two individuals uh, based on a lot of of, of that kind of, um, you know, uh, stuff. So um, so we, we were off to a really good you know, we were off to a really good starting point in that regard. And then that just led into uh, identifying other areas where we were clearly, you know, um, uh, aligned in just the way that they had built the business. They've got some really strong, you know, uh, processes and systems in place, uh, but there's also some opportunities to improve upon, you know, what they have built. Um, so again, just, uh, just, a lot of instant alignment, and then that led into some further alignment for some of the other things that uh, we see as as opportunities to build upon. Like I said, the foundation that they've kind of set. Yeah. So I, you know, it it becomes kind of a double edged sword in in some respects, right? So you build that rapport, you like the people, you you like the values that they that they bring to the table, but. You know, you, you drew the parallel earlier of real estate agents and business brokers, right? Both of them being brokers listing something for sale. And so, you know, let's let's tug on that a little bit further, right? A lot of times when a real estate broker will list a house, they list it at what they think they might be able to get. And they look at comps and they, you know, they do this broker opinion of what they believe that it's worth. The same thing happens on, on the business side, but it's not always based fully in what the business is truly valued at, right? There's, there's, there's typically some sort of a markup. And so, you know, you've, you've built this rapport, you've got a great relationship, your values are aligned, but now it's time to basically tell them what they're asking for is too much. So how did you, how did you cross that? Uh, that line and deal with that with these with these sellers. Yeah. All right. So a lot there. Um, so just for uh, some context, you know, um, a listing real estate agent represents the seller. A buyer's real real estate agent represents the buyer. So there's typically there's two parties involved that are representing you know, their clients. Um, I, I guess I should say there's two brokers involved there representing each of their individual parties. Uh, business buying is different because uh, the broker uh, is kind of representing the business. Uh, now, you know, there's differing opinions here, and uh, I'm sure some business brokers might might push back on this a little bit. But essentially, the business broker is representing they're representing the seller. 
the seller approaches the business owner or the owner approaches the business broker and says, you know, I want to list my business for sale and I want to sell my business. And the broker says, great, let me help to, to help facilitate, you know, that for you. So the, the broker is absolutely representing the seller. Uh, now, the broker wants to get a deal done. So a good broker is going to work with the seller and it's going to work with potential buyers to help facilitate and negotiate a, a, a successful transaction, we'll call it, right? Because that's how the broker gets paid. Um, so that's important to... Um, that's important to understand. Um, okay. A good broker is also going to do uh, some good legwork with their client on the front end to help put their best foot forward when they're coming to identify a, a value, a listed value for the business. Um, you know, you and I talk a lot about, you know, uh, the fact that the vast majority, uh, depending on what statistic, you know, you look at, uh, what, uh, what number, you know, on the first page of Google you look at, you know, uh, but somewhere between 70 and 90% of small businesses that list for sale uh, don't ever sell. And a big reason behind that, is, one of the big reasons behind that is just an inflated value in the minds of the owner right? Essentially, they, they think their business is worth way more than it actually is. So when people start to come in with, you know, fair market, you know, uh, values, the owners are offended, you know, they are disgusted, uh, they are this, they are that, and uh, they don't entertain any of the offers seriously because they, they think that they're, they're you know, they're, they're lowball offers when Generally, they're, they're they're probably actually fair and reasonable offers, or they're they're a good starting point at least. But they're way out of the ballpark because the owner wants way more than their business is actually going to ever sell for. Um, so a good broker is going to help to uh, to uh, approach that uh, and to help facilitate that conversation from the get go. And in this case you know, the, the broker that had this business listed for sale uh, did a great job of that. So they listed the business at a, uh, a reasonable, a reasonable valuation, very reasonable. Um, you know, it was listed at approximately three times uh, in this case. Uh, so profitability can be, uh, <laughs> can be a sliced and diced in several different ways in the small business owner place marketplace. It can be seller discretionary earnings. It can be EBITDA. It can be EBIT. It can be based on net profit. Uh, all these different ways to, you know, uh, to uh, slice and dice, you know, profitability. In this case, it was based off of a multiple, a three multiple approximately of seller discretionary earnings, which for anybody that doesn't know what that is, Seller discretionary earnings is, um, it is, you know, imagine you've got a, a pot and inside that pot, you throw in uh, a salary. So salary and wages, 
um, in any other financial benefit the owner is realizing. So for example, um, in this particular case, they were uh, running health insurance, their personal health insurance insurance through the business. Um, they uh, made quarterly tax payments. So those can be thrown into the bucket. Uh, they uh, had some vehicle expenses that might have been a little bit more on the personal side, possibly. So uh, those were thrown into the bucket. And, and when you add up all of those, uh, that came to, you know, roughly about $600,000 plus or minus uh, of total financial benefit. And that's classified as the seller discretionary earnings. And this particular business was listed at about a three multiple off of uh, the seller discretionary earnings. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. So you use that as a starting point and then you begin to negotiate different aspects and, you know, not to, not to kind of put you on the spot here, but the, the reality is a large majority and, and even lending institutions would like for the large majority of transactions to have some sort of a seller carry, mm -hmm. meaning that the seller's carrying a portion of the financing because the bank feels that puts them in a, in a more comfortable spot. The owner's going to be continually, the, the selling owner is going to be continuing to want to make sure that the business functions well and continues to run at about the same seller discretionary earnings and revenues continue to grow or at least stay flat. And, and that helps a lender feel more comfortable. So you, you ultimately didn't have a seller carry in this particular transaction. So I'd love to have you share with the, uh, the listening audience how that came about. Yeah, for sure. Um, so another you know, definitely one of the top three reasons that a small business, you know, doesn't sell, transact, you know, transfer, whatever you want to call it, is because they just don't keep good books and records, aka their financials are a hot mess. Um, and we could certainly list a, a lot of examples that you and I have, have you know, seen in our, in our practice because we review our clients' financials very regularly. Uh, but again, in this case, um, something that drew me into the business and certainly kept me moving forward with wanting to acquire it was the fact that their financials were extremely clean. They weren't perfect, but they were dang near close to being perfect. And when your financials are in a really um, uh, are, are are really transparent and current and uh, clean, then it makes it really easy for a buyer to be able to wrap their arms around you know uh, what they are really buying, which is the cash flow of the business. And when you can clearly and easily wrap your arms around the cash flow of the business and really say, you know, uh, just be able to put yourself, you know, in, in the shoes of your future self and say, hey, you know, if I'm owning and operating this business, how likely is it for me to be able to continue the same financial success that this business has had? 
if you can, if you can really easily put yourself in your future shoes and feel really confident about that, um, that that's, I mean, it's, that's kind of everything in a, in, in a way, right. Um, because it, it, it reduces your perception of the risk significantly as the buyer, which then in turn gives you much greater confidence that you're going to be able to maintain the same or similar level levels of profitability that the business was realizing when, you know, the, the uh, previous owners were, you know, uh, were operating it. Um, so, all right, I kind of went off on a tangent there, but ask the question again, just to make sure that I answered it. Yeah. So, I mean, ultimately you didn't end up doing any sort of seller carry oh, that's um, right. okay. on this. And, and you, and I know, I mean, the listeners don't know this, but I know that there was at least one bank who was not okay with that and didn't want to do the transaction because there was no seller carry. Okay. That's right. The seller carry. Yeah. So the seller carry is attractive to buyers for sure. Much more attractive to buyers because it essentially uh, it essentially maintains a level of skin in the game, you know, for the sellers. Um, I'll, I'll go back to my previous comments around, and that's where I was going on that tangent is, you know, when you have super clean books, uh, the seller carry becomes much more of a moot point. Um, and that was the case in this particular situation. They had super clean, easy to understand financials, very well documented and current. Um, and that gave me much more confidence in, again, being able to realize the same level of success that they have had. And so, um, uh, and also in this particular situation, the, the it's hit or miss with sellers. Some sellers are like all about it. You know, they're totally fine to have a seller, <clears throat> excuse me, a seller note. And some sellers just, they, they hate it. It, it just, it doesn't sit well with them. It makes them really uneasy. Um, they don't want to be tied to the business for a long period of time after the transaction closes. And uh, that was kind of the case here. Uh, so they were not excited about a seller note at all. And um, based on the fact that their financials were really clean, I was comfortable not, you know, uh, having or requesting or requiring, you know, a seller note to be able to feel comfortable to kind of close on this deal. Um, the If you're going to go the SBA route, um, I believe that the SBA doesn't allow like official seller notes. Um, so you have to get creative with how you structure that. Um, because when you do a small business acquisition, um, if you use the SBA, um, you know, they're going to take first position on everything. And when I mean everything, uh, they're going to take first position on the assets of the business. They're going to take first position uh, on your, you know, personal assets that they're going to require you to put up as collateral. So in this case, um, you know, they'll take first position on my primary residence as well as the 
uh, assets of the business, which I, I believe, at least at this point in working with my lender, that that is uh, what that's that that will be their requirements is, you know, taking first position on assets of the business and my personal residence. I don't think there'll be anything above and beyond that, but that's still kind of to be determined. Um, but the seller note can be a great strategy if there is a little bit more uncertainty around maintaining the same level of success that the previous owners realized. So it can be a great tool, um, but uh, yeah, it's just it's hit or miss how it's perceived by the sellers. So just to tie a bow, put a bow on, on that, they did not like the idea of it at all. And I was comfortable not having or exploring it really because uh, they did keep really good books and records. Yeah. Yeah, no. And I, and I think obviously you can wrap your head around that. If you, if you, if you listen to it or, or excuse me, if you look into it and you feel comfortable with the financials and, and are okay without it, Again, sometimes the lenders want that because they do want that added skin in the game. But the a couple of things that I would just point out that can be beneficial on both sides. So the benefit to the buyer is that continued engagement and continued desire to see the business continue to be successful for the years to come, right? So that helps a buyer feel more comfortable with what they're buying because there's skin in the game from the seller. But on the seller side, there can also be a big benefit from a tax perspective rather than receiving all of the purchase price upfront in one lump sum and have to pay taxes on all of that at one point. It gives them the ability to spread out their taxation on the purchase of the business as well. So yeah. there, there can be benefits on both sides and, and definitely anybody who's listening should be exploring that at least as a part of their strategy from a negotiating standpoint, as well as just structuring the deal. Yeah. Yeah. Super good point. Absolutely. And what's really cool about the small business acquisition world is that you can get super creative, you know, when you are structuring a deal, there are really no limitations. Like, I don't know why this, I, I use this example when I was explaining this to somebody the other day, but if I was buying a business from you and, you know, you had a, a, a dog that was like, you know, part of the marketing, you know, strategy and, um, you know, I wanted to include that as part of the terms of the deal. You know, I could say something like, hey, you know, I'll buy the business for, for X dollars, but, you know, uh, I still want to have access to Rover you know, uh, the first and third Wednesdays of the month to record, you know, promotional videos. And I mean, like you can literally include anything that you want in a small acquisition, small business acquisition. And if the buyer and the seller both agree on it, then, then, then you're good. So that's, what's really cool about, you know, small business acquisitions in that world is that, you know, uh, you can structure a deal in essentially any way that you want to, as long as both parties agree. And one of the things that, you know, just to kind of take, take what you mentioned one step further is there is absolutely a big benefit to the seller uh, to carry a note uh, because it does reduce your tax burden up front. It also 
allows you to earn a whole bunch of extra money on the deal because you essentially, you typically will assign an interest rate to that note that you are carrying, right? So if you're gonna, if you're gonna act like a bank, well then you should be treated and, and reap the same benefits that a bank will, will reap in a transaction. Um, but it, it also can allow you to kind of like annuitize, you know, the sale of your business. You know, like you could structure a deal to where you say, hey, you know, I'll sell you my business for, you know, $2 million. And I just want essentially a guaranteed payment of $100,000 a year for the next, you know, 20 years. I mean, you know, that's obviously a long period of time. But if you wanted to structure your deal like that, and both parties agree, have at it, you know? Yeah. Um, so yeah, there are definitely some, th there are benefits to both sides, you know, by, by, by uh, executing on, on a seller note for sure, undoubtedly. Yeah. Well, so believe it or not, we've run a bunch of time already, but there is one last thing that I want to kind of um, just have you address. And that is, what else should they be thinking about, right? So you're getting to the closing table, negotiations are done, you're going through financing, everything's kind of, you know, taken care of there. But what should anybody who's looking at buying a business think about after the transaction is finished, right? It's time to start. What should they have been prepared for before making the transition, both financially, emotionally, operationally, like what are some some things to to be aware of? Yeah, so I'm going to answer that quickly, and then I'm going to turn that back over to you, because you have, you know, acquired existing businesses in the past, so you've literally, you you've lived through that at least once or twice. So I think it'd be great to get your perspective, but as somebody that is, uh, you know, just in the trenches, you know, at the moment, um. I think a couple things jump out at me. Expect the unexpected. Um, you know, there's a lot of different ways I've described this. You know, there's going to be there's going to be ghosts and skeletons and goblins hiding around almost every corner after you make an acquisition. Um, yeah, you can mitigate some of those risks, and some you just absolutely cannot. You cannot mitigate them, no matter how much planning or time or money that you spend, you know, doing due diligence. There are just things that are going to happen that are totally wild and out of your control. Um, so expect the unexpected. Uh, if you are, if you're planning, you know, if the business typically uh, has a burn rate and a burn rate is basically how much money does it cost to operate your business on a monthly basis? If your monthly burn rate for the business or, or you know, before you acquire it is, uh, I'll just use a nice round number. If it's a hundred grand, um, you know, uh, plan to have three to six months of working capital minimum. So if the burn rate for the business is a hundred thousand dollars a month, you'll be in a really good position if you've got three to six hundred thousand dollars of operating capital from day one, because a lot of those ghosts and goblins and, and, you know, skeletons that you're going to encounter are going to cost money, <laughs> you know? Uh, so the more working capital that you have, the better position that you're in, uh, 
certainly moving forward. Um, and then I guess the second thing I'll, I'll, I'll mention, and then let's pass it over to you, is um, spend as much time as humanly possible with the sellers before you close. So if they will let you shadow them for days or weeks, do that. Um, if, if, if they're not telling employees about the transaction, so you can't necessarily go out and, 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 and shadow them in the field, so to speak, because the employees don't know about it, get creative. Ask them if you can shadow them at, in the field, not as the future buyer of the business, but as a, uh, as a, as a consultant, as their, you know, second cousin that just came into town. Like, you know, I'm not saying lie, but come up with something creative to where, you know, the owner, the owners will feel comfortable allowing you to get out into the field to watch how things are actually done beforehand, because you will learn a ton from doing that. So however, you know, you, you, you slice and dice it, figure out a way to spend as much time as possible with the owner or owners prior to close, because that will give you insights that you will never be able to get just by looking at documents and having conversations. Yeah, no, very, very good advice. I would, I would probably add to that, that if you have the opportunity to talk to customers, current customers or past customers about their experience with the organization and you know, what they love about working with the organization, what they would love to see different about working with the organization, anything that you can do to get yourself more comfortable and more ready to step into the ownership of that business on day one, you absolutely should do that. And I, I love the financial side of things. I, I would just kind of um, maybe clarify there, you know, I don't think that Landon's suggesting that you take that money necessarily and put that into the business checking account, but make sure that you have that working capital available to you in short order if needed, right? So don't move it out of an account that's earning a better interest rate just to set it in the, the company checking account to make you feel comfortable, you know, personally, like the money's there, um, but make sure that you do have that, that money available. Because if it's, if it's taking every dime that you have to be able to close on the transaction and you're dependent on the business running exactly as the owner told you it was going to run, you're probably asking for some, for some problems, right? Yeah. I mean, Landon and I have a client right now who just completed an acquisition as well. And it happens to be in a business that's somewhat seasonal. It's dependent on temperatures being right. Well, this has been a long winter in a lot of areas of this country. And so starting work has been delayed longer than expected, and it's created a short-term cash flow crunch. And so, you know, it, it, we were making sure that this particular individual understood that there was an importance of having that money available, and it is available, but that doesn't mean that it has to be in the particular account that's not going to earn any interest, for example. Yeah. I mean, you've always said this way more eloquently than, than I have, but, you know, uh, Essentially, I, I believe it's the number one reason uh, that small businesses fail or go bankrupt or, you know, have to shut, you know, close the doors, whatever the case may be, is they run out of cash. 
you know, if it's not number one, it's definitely one, two, or three, but I believe it's probably number one. And certainly in our experience, it, it is absolutely number one. Um, you know, it's, it's crazy. I mean, we've seen, you and I have seen some pretty, pretty hairy situations, you know, with businesses that are doing five, 10, $20 million a year in sales. And they don't just, you know, for lack of a better term, they don't plan accordingly. And I know that we don't really have time to unpack what that means, but they don't plan accordingly. And all of a sudden they are, their backs are up against the wall and they're having to, you know, uh, find a solution, a cash solution to a problem that they should never be having, you know, for whatever reason, you know, for whatever, you know, whatever they did, they just didn't plan accordingly. And all of a sudden they're, you know, they're struggling to make payroll or they can't acquire a piece of equipment that should be a walk in the park for them to acquire or whatever the case may be. Um, and it's just because they, they just haven't done, you know, they didn't do proper planning, cash flow planning, you know, more specifically. And all of a sudden, you know, they're in a really tough spot that they should never have put themselves in. Yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, I was, I was meeting with one of our clients last week or the week before, and uh, it's a, it's a father son ownership team. And, you know, the father started the business just basically because he realized he could make more money doing that than working for somebody else and never envisioned growing it into something humongous, but just providing himself a, a great lifestyle to continue to raise his family. And so, you know, I, I looked at him and I said, well, you know, if we go back 10 or 15 years, they're celebrating their 20 year anniversary this year. But if we go back 10 or 15 years, I would venture to say that you never would have expected the company talking to the father, you never would have expected the company to do 10 or 12 million in revenue, which is where they are today. But I looked at the son and I said, you probably did expect it to do 10 or 12 million in revenue. And you've had these big you know, dreams and, and beliefs that you could build it to a certain extent, but you probably didn't expect that when you were at 10 or 12 million in revenue, that you'd still be worried about cash flow the way that you were worried about cash flow 10 years ago. And that's and what you just said is exactly why they haven't done a great job of forecasting their cash flows and understanding what the future looks like so that they can plan for it ahead of time. They look at the balance that's in the checking account at any given moment and don't think about what's coming up in the future and what they need to make sure that they have you know money set aside for to cover certain things. And so, it, uh, it, it's crazy, but most, most people who are listening are probably thinking, wait a minute, they're worried about having cash in the bank and paying their employees and all those sorts of things. And they're doing 12 million in revenue. But that's the reality is every business, regardless of the amount of revenue, they have to understand their cash flow and watch it closely and make sure that, you know, your bill, your accounts receivable aren't getting too old or, you know, all these types of things that you can do to control the cash flow inside of the business, because you're you're absolutely right. It is the number one reason that businesses fail is that they can't control their cash flow. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, just I, I guess we're kind of well, I we're, we're kind of out of time, but you know, hey, it's it's also our podcast, so if we want to go, late, <laughs> I think we're fine. <laughs> yeah, I think we both can approve it. But uh, 
I mean, just to just to kind of close it up, um, you know, just spend like a couple minutes and talk to us about one of the businesses that you personally acquired in the past. And, um, you know, I, I think I, I, I touched a lot on the, the leading up to the acquisition, but once you've completed the acquisition, talk to us just about what are some things that, that, you know, that, that we all need to be thinking about, like in, in, uh, you know, regarding integration and all that kind of comes with integration around, you know, the culture and the processes and, you know, the systems that are used and technology and all that kind of stuff. Like, how did you kind of approach that, you know, in one year acquisitions and where did you succeed and maybe where did you kind of fail and what would you have done differently? Yeah, I mean, I think I think the first thing I'd go back to what you talked about with alignment, right? And and just because you and the owners that are selling are in alignment on culture, values, principles, whatever the whatever the case may be, does not necessarily mean that the relationship and the alignment that you're looking for there will align as well with you as it did with the past ownership group, meaning the employees, the executive team, the management team, whatever that looks like. Just because you guys have the same values doesn't mean that you're going to connect as well as they did with the current group. And expecting that that will happen quickly or it'll be a seamless process is a big no-no. You've got to expect that there's going to be bumps and bruises and you've, you've got to kind of go in with your eyes wide open and explaining to them, look, I'm not Mr. and Mrs. X, right? I know that. You've worked with them for a very long time. They speak very highly of you. They talk about your value to this organization and, and you know the importance of you being here. We don't have the same personality, but I want to make sure that you understand that I value you here and I want to learn from you what you would like to see me do differently than what they did, what you'd like to see me do the same that they did, the things that are value, that are important to you in helping to continue to be a top performer for our organization. So that integration can be can be crucial. And if and and you've got to be willing to actually make changes early if you believe that those changes are warranted. If it's not going to work, even if they told you that is the person that you need, they're the top performer in this, they're, you know, whatever. If you're butting heads and it's not working from the get-go and it's not going to work for your organization and it's going to be detrimental, you know, everybody's heard higher, slow, fire fast. It it it's true here too, right? If it's going to create a problem and it's ultimately going to affect the organization, you got to make that that change quickly. The other thing that I would add where I where I have failed a couple of different times uh, in, in acquisition is believing that the management team is capable that was instilled you know installed before and was running the organization is capable of just running it as an absentee owner like you mentioned right i did go in thinking these organizations are running well they're profitable or maybe they're not so profitable but i see an opportunity to kind of turn things quickly but accepting or believing that the that the team was running smoothly and that there weren't problems going on behind the scenes and it caught me in a big, big way with a couple of different acquisitions to where I had to fully get involved. And like you said, that myth of absentee ownership, especially in an acquisition, 
I had to fully get involved and figure out where the problems were and fix them. And, you know, in some, in some of the acquisitions I've done, there had to be a major contraction in terms of closing locations or whatever to get to a profitable number, as well as get full control of the team and buy-in from the team that was there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Super good point. You know, there, there's all these, uh, small business buying gurus out there right now, because this is kind of a hot topic these days, you know, um, you know, especially with, you know, young, younger, you know, folks and uh, younger folks, that makes me sound really old, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> younger, younger people, uh, you know, uh, and, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're touting that, you know, you go out and you, you know, you, you buy this, business and it's just going to spit off, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars of income for you. And you're going to, you know, sit back, you know, uh, you know, from your, you know, remote location, you know, inside your, you know, your parents' bedroom, I mean, your parents' uh, basement or, you know, out on a beach or what have you. And you're just going to collect these big fat checks and have to do nothing for it. And that's just, it's, it's just, it's a myth that that doesn't really exist out there. You can get to that point. But it takes, it takes a lot of work, a lot of involvement, a couple of years of grinding and having the right management team in place that can allow you, you know, to get to that, to that point. So you can get there, but uh, buying a business that already has all that stuff in place, uh, that's a needle in a very, very large haystack. Yeah, yeah, no doubt about it. Well, I'll tell you what, Landon, as always, appreciate the conversation. There's nobody I'd rather be on this journey with, both on the backbone planning partners and tycoons of small biz side than, than with you. And appreciate the conversation and your openness and willingness to talk about uh, what it is that you're doing at this point. Yeah, likewise, brother. That was fun, man. Enjoyed it. Appreciate you. listening to Tycoons of Small Biz, a podcast for small business owners by small business owners. Join us next week for an introduction to another great tycoon and be sure to follow us on our social media channels for links to all of our episodes and great content.